I uh, welcome all of you to uh, uh, the last in our Mansfield series for this term. And, uh, and uh, as you know, these uh, events have become very special in our calendar. And we always invite people we admire and uh, who we uh, think we would like to uh, come into our midst and to excite us with interesting and new information and ideas. And I am introducing you tonight to Dr. Sherry Nelfeke. And uh, she is uh, a, a, a rather extraordinary woman, in my view. Um, a, bit, a bit over a year, well, it was about a year ago now, um, I, uh, I was invited to go to um, chair some sessions um, at the Hay Festival, the Hay Literary Festival, was running in Beirut. And of course, the talk everywhere was of, of the Arab Spring and, uh, and the excitement around that. And so um, this was a special event in which uh, Beirut was to play host through the auspices of the Hay Festival to writers, thinkers, um, different people who were engaging with the Arab world. And, uh, and so um, the sessions that I was largely involved with were ones to do with discussions about the future of politics, the position of women, um, and, uh, and of course the whole wider uh, <coughs> of, of human rights. And then the interesting thing about going to these events is you also go and sit in the audience and hear other people unconnected with their own sessions. And I went to hear this very interesting woman uh, Dr. Sherina Ofeke, who's, who's really been working in epidemiology, the whole business of, of uh, the transmission of disease, who worked with the United Nations Global Commission on HIV and the law. And she just generally um, sounded to me like an extraordinarily interesting pe person. But she'd also written a book whose title, of course, was greatly seductive, <laughs> Sex and the Citadel. And, uh, and it, was, it was about the intimate life in a changing Arab world. And uh, I have a wonderful uh, writer friend, a playwright, Hanan Al-Sheikh, and Han Hanan Al-Sheikh said, you have to hear this woman, everybody is talking about this woman in the Arab world. And so she was there herself, um, involved in some of the events, and um, we went together. And I heard uh, uh, Dr. Alfeki, and I thought that she had really opened up a discussion that needs to be had, because if we talk about women's at the position of women, if we talk about the, the whole human being, um, we often, there were bits that were never included, and, our, and sex and sexuality and so forth have often been um, under the radar. And uh, this brave, um, interesting, serious woman um, has engaged with a subject that really has lain in that um, hidden place. And, uh, and so we are in for a treat tonight, I think, because she will talk to us um, and to me about her book and her work and the research that she did in the Arab world, which was essentially about the sexual lives of our Arab people. And so we're going to do this as, a, as an in-conversation. Shireen has just arrived off a plane. Um, she had a nap and she mm -hmm. has now kind of uh, revived herself with a quick shot of black coffee. And um, we're going to do it as a conversation about her book, which I have to encourage you all to buy, because in fact, although we'll cover some of it tonight in our discussion, um, it reaches far beyond. And so I want to welcome Dr. Sherry Nelfeke. Um, 
chairs, but we have. And I have to tell you, these are your opening arguments. I, I can understand why you're such a successful barrister. It's so hard now to rise to the occasion. No, you can rise to the occasion easily. Um, I, 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 uh, I wanted to start by introducing you um, and your life to, to um, our audience, because you, um, in fact, are um, a North American um, Arab woman, in a way. Yes? Yes. And Guilty as charged. Tell everybody about your mother, your father, and your grandmother, who, who figures largely, she's like me, in the, regularly in the book, a reference is made to her Arab granny. For me, it was my Irish grandma. But so I wanted you to tell us a, a little bit about your parentage, and um, because your mother was Welsh, is still is Welsh, still card carrying, card carrying Welsh, and your uh, and your father is Egyptian, and your mother and he met in where uh, Oxford. There you are, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and it's right, isn't it, that your mother um, and he married, and that she became a Muslim. Um, Correct. To, yes. to embrace his uh, religious background and traditions. Um, and they emigrated and went to live in Canada. Correct. So when do you come on the scene? I come on the scene at uh, the former Radcliffe Infirmary. Mm. Uh, so I was born, born and, and, and bred for a couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, then, and then all went to Canada. For, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Were you brought up as a Muslim? Yes, yes. Although it's very interesting, my upbringing what is what I call almost with an icing of Islam. So uh, I, I was brought up uh, seeing my father pray five times a day and uh, hearing Quran and uh, observing some of the sort of superficial elements of, of religiosity, not drinking, not eating pork. But I, my, my father was very, very careful about how he approached Islam with me because uh, certainly as Muslims living in Canada, and this was before Muslims in the West uh, uh, were really a talking point, but nonetheless he had seen so many of his uh, Egyptian friends and Muslim friends living in Canada f essentially force Islam on their children and particularly on their daughters as a sort of vaccine against the perceived ills of the West. And my father was very pragmatic and he said, look, I, I am a devout Muslim, you, you, will watch, you can watch me. And then I will give you essentially the space and the time. And if you come to Islam in your own terms and in your own time, then all the better, but I'm not going to force you. And, and, and so, so it was a very liberal, it was a very liberal upbringing. And <coughs> it was his mother, his mother is the granny. Yeah, Nuna Aziza, yes. Yes, and Aziza figures in, in, in your book from time to time as a reference point because you tell a very interesting story and it's a reminder to all of us about how it's not that long ago that some of the things that we kind of frown on um, with regard to Islam were actually operating in Western communities and societies too. I mean, your mother was brought up in Wales where the idea of somebody having sex outside of marriage back in the 40s and 50s um, uh, the idea of somebody getting pregnant um, was a source of great shame on families and, uh, and horror. And so there, there were those elements too of a kind of, of the taboo nature of sex that it was, it was, but then all of that changed. It was the 60s that was accused of having changed everything. There's an interesting history though around the Arab world, how the Arab world, which is now seen as being so inhibiting of sexuality, there was a time when it was seen as being, certainly in Victorian times, if we see the paintings of the Victorian era, 
you know, there is the place where a certain kind of erotic, mm. uh, rather kind of fascinating orientalism is on display, which includes very overt sexual sexuality. What happened? Uh, okay, well, that's a very long story, <laughs> part of much of which I tell in the book. But to to condense a thousand years of history, um, essentially, it, it's not just in the Victorian period that Westerners looked to uh, the what we now call the Arab region as a, a playground of of, of licentiousness, licentiousness. Really, it's very interesting going right back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, if one reads the uh, accounts of medieval Christian critics of this new upstart faith, one of their indictments of Islam was about the Prophet Muhammad, and they would say, how can this man possibly be a messenger of God? He is so sexed up. <laughs> and essentially what they're referring to is that the Prophet Muhammad and the Quran and, and our, our sort of seminal texts in uh, Islam talk about sex very frankly, very openly, and also with considerable humor, which is quite interesting. And, and the reason, but the reason for this is that sex is, is Islam conceives of sex. It's not anti-sex. It sees sex as such a powerful, powerful source that you have to regulate it. And uh, and one of those structures in which we regulate sex is, is 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 marriage. And so we have a long history of Arabic erotica, writing over about from about the ninth century until the sixteenth century, and then it really sort of peters off in the nineteenth century. And this this writing is is full frontal, quite frankly. I mean, there is nothing, I mean, there is really nothing in The Joy of Sex or Playboy, any other you know, taboo-busting book of the sexual revolu revolution, or indeed, dare I suggest, Fifty Shades of Grey, that they were not writing about a thousand years in Baghdad. Well, it's, it's, it, I mean, um, the woman friend that I spoke about who accompanied me to hear you speak, um, has written a, a new translation of the Arabian Nights, and, uh, and and it's and 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 of course this, you know the sex in it is very um, powerful, very uh, wildly expressed, and I saw it being presented as a play in Toronto um, a, a couple of years back, and it was you know it's a bit of a shocker, um, and, uh, and I think lots of people don't realise that because it's turned into kind of Aladdin. Stuff on, on yeah. stage, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but it's kind of it's a sort of interesting story um, of sexuality in almost many forms. So it, what's interesting about Aflela Walela, uh, Thousand and One Nights, is that in many of these books of Arabic erotica, is that they talk about sex as a source of pleasure, and not just problems. And the difficulty we have today is that the only acceptable way to talk about sex in the Arab world is to problematize it. It's, it's a source of disease or dysfunction or exploitation. Uh, but a thousand years ago, our ancestors celebrated it. And it wasn't just about men's sexual pleasure, it was also celebrating the, the sexual pleasure of women as well. And, and, and that came, comes across in, in A Thousand and One Nights. The problem is where we are today, and certainly I talk in my book that many of the women uh, I interviewed felt sexually trammeled. And this included wives within the context of marriage. So if I can just explain about the title of my book, Sex and the Citadel. Actually, let me take a step back. How many people here have been to Cairo? My God, this is so impressive. Please come back. We need your, we need your two, we need your pounds, your, your pounds sterling. Don't bring Egyptian pounds, please bring pounds sterling. How many of you have visited the Citadel? Okay. So the Citadel is an imposing fortress. Uh, it once dominated the, the, the skyline of Cairo. And generically, it is a fortress. And I use the Citadel as a metaphor 
fact that the only socially accepted context for sex in the Arab world today is marriage. And it's not any old marriage, it has to be marriage which is approved by your family and approved by uh, religion and registered by the state. And anything outside that, any sexual activity outside that, that, that uh, fortress is, uh, it's haram, it's forbidden, it's aib, it's shameful. We have this endless lexicon of reproof in Arabic. But the problem we have today is that at any given time, there are large numbers of people outside the citadel, which we can talk about. But even within the citadel, wives feel in, really sexually trammeled. They feel that they're not satisfied with their relations with their husbands inside the bedroom or out. But they have a lot of difficulty articulating their desire. And very often, they have difficulty speaking because they are afraid of being seen as bad women if they show any interest or any knowledge. And a thousand years ago, this was definitely not, not the case. The, the, the fact that women were sexually um, uh, empowered, if you like to use a term, and with, within a relative frame, uh, was not something to be ashamed of. It was something to be celebrated. When did the shift happen? It's, it's a long, it's a long uh, process, but, but, but certainly what's interesting is that this uh, literature, and, and one needs to keep in mind that books of the medieval period are not some sort of Vasquez <coughs> and Johnson for the age. So uh, they're a proxy measure of attitudes and behaviors in the bedroom. We, we, we don't have that sort of research from ages past, and in fact, we don't really have much of that research today. In any case, this, uh, this literature dries up around the 19th century, and it's not a coincidence that this is also the time that one sees a European colonization of many countries in the I, Arab region. I mean, I don't, I mean it seems to me, uh, separate from this, um, someone suggested to me that when empires are in decline, um, that you then see more and more authoritarian and repressive behaviors around things like sex and so on, um, which may account for perhaps things happening in the United States with the rise of fundamentalist sort of Christian religion and horrors about, you know. Or, or indeed recent events in, or, in Egypt. In Egypt, in Egypt. Yes. Or, you know, and we can point to lots of different places where people, when power in other areas is ceding, there is somehow perhaps the, the desire to control arises in other places. Um, you're saying in the 19th century that it linked to colonization. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the writers. I mean, uh, there were people in this room who would be able to talk about it better than I would, but there are people like Flaubert and all sorts of people went to the Arab world pursuing this kind of, uh, either this idea that there was, a, there was an opportunity for uh, sexual like, exploration and chances that wouldn't be possible in their own societies. So there were certainly things still in the 19th century going on. That's very true, but again, what one finds is that <coughs> certainly amongst the elite in, uh, in Egypt, for example, you start to see a closing down around sort of open writing about sex. And part of that comes from the fact that people are beginning to ask, why have we fallen under the sway of a foreign power? Is it because we are as they see us? They say that we are licentious. They say we are debauched. Is that really part of our decline and, and fall? And what's interesting is that you see this argument taken up by Hassan al-Banna in the early uh, part of the 20th century. He's the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. In the 20s. Well, exactly. And part of his argument was that Egypt has fallen under uh, the sway of the British because we as Egyptians have deviated from Sharia, the Islamic way. And part of that is our women are out and about and are, are, not, uh, are not occupying the rightful place according to very conservative interpretations of Islam. And also in particular, you start to see a lot of anxiety around homosexuality, 
which uh, certainly a lot of Western uh, writers, including Flaubert, um, it sort of picked upon as uh, you know, proof positive of the, the sexual licentiousness of, of this part of the, of, of the world. But I have to say that, that this is a long process of closing down, but what really has changed the situation in Egypt and in much of the Arab world in recent decades has been the rise of Islamic fundamentalism since 1979. And that has changed at least public uh, discussion and public discourse around sex in a way that uh, certainly one didn't see this degree of unease in one's sexual skin in my father's day or indeed in my, in my grandmother's day. Mm -hmm. And just to come back to Nuna Aziza, whom I'm delighted my publishers actually have given her her own entry in the index under Nuna Aziza, which is absolutely fantastic. Does, so, Nuna, does Nuna mean grandma? It does, and, and sadly she is, is, no longer, is, is, is no longer with us to, to, to see this tribute to her. But again, part of what I discuss in my book, she came from the countryside north of Cairo, she was born in the early part of the 20th century, and the way that she talked about sexual matters and regulated her own, led her own sexual life, uh, was very different than what I see in my relatives today. And, Part of a reflection of that are her wonderful proverbs, which are are great. Are, 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 um, are, are not PG-13, to be sure. Uh, and uh, one of the ones I love to quote is, uh, she says, Madame um, Bayid and Tizi Khalas, translated into English, it means, so long as it's away from my ass, it's okay. That was interesting. <laughs> well, actually, well, let me be clear, she was not talking about the village donkey here, either. Um, but, but again, what she's trying to say is what happens behind closed doors is your business, and that's actually very important when we think about how to find space for populations who are on the margins of sexuality, who are so far outside the citadel, like uh, men and women who have sex with their own sex, or transgender people. Yeah. I want to, you to tell the story about how you came to write this book, um, about your own journey to actually suddenly um, going down the track of wanting to explore a bit further um, how sex lives were in the Arab world. Um, where did it start? Uh, it started with uh, September 11th, interestingly. So as I said, I was uh, brought up in Canada and never really thought much about my Arab or Islamic heritage. We used to make the, the, the annual pilgrimage to Egypt to visit my grandmother and the extended family, but it, it, I never went beyond the surface. Uh, in September, when September, uh, September 11th, 2001, I was uh, a journalist with The Economist. Magazine, and I was writing about healthcare. I was very far from the grand political debates of the day, but I would listen to people talk about those Arabs and those Muslims, and I realized that I didn't have to listen to other people tell me about this part of the world. I could discover it for myself. I had a privileged access. The fact that I chose sex as my lens, I know, is a little unusual. Slightly unusual. But the reason for that is my professional background. So I, I trained as an immunologist, and when I was at The Economist, part of my responsibility was writing about the global HIV-AIDS epidemic. At the time, people didn't pay attention to HIV in the Arab region. They thought they don't have HIV, these are Muslims, they don't engage in these dangerous behaviors, etc., etc. I wanted to find out what was happening. I went back onto the, into the ground, and when people were telling me that HIV would never be a problem in the Arab region, I was meeting whole families, husbands, wives, and children who were infected. And interestingly, fast forward now, and we do have slightly better data, not much better, but we have a better idea of what's going on around HIV in the Arab world. And the Middle East and North Africa is now one of only two parts of the world where HIV is still on the rise. 
And if you want to understand HIV and you want to rise to the challenge of this emerging <laughs> epidemic, you have to look at sex. Because the majority of cases in most of our countries are sexually transmitted, and the taboos around sex are a huge obstacle mm -hmm. to uh, rising to the challenge of HIV. Uh, HIV became a very useful way for me to start talking to people about sex. Because if you, you know, sit down or knock on the door and say, hey, I want to talk about sex, or I want to talk about sexual rights, it's a non-starter. Mm -hmm. But as I said, the only way to really get sex out into the public domain in the Arab region today is to talk about it as a problem. So if you wear the white coat of public health, i.e. HIV, you get in the door. And then once you're in, you take off your white coat. And then you really start talking. And that's when the really interesting observations started to appear, because beyond just the medicalization of sex, attitudes and behaviors, risk factors, when you talk about sexuality, which is about fears and desires and fantasies, it is an incredibly powerful way to look at not just what's happening inside the bedroom, but what's happening outside. Because intimate life is shaped by movements on the bigger stage, in politics and economics and religion and tradition and gender and generations. And that's why I say in this book, if you really want to know a people, you start by looking inside their bedrooms. And that's exactly what I did. How did you do it? I mean, you told us about wearing the white coat and saying, I want to have, you know, I'm trying to look at the, the, this, um, the, the incidence of HIV and so on, and how, how it might be transmitted. And you start talking to people who are already presumably diagnosed and then moved on to people who didn't have it, but. Um, what their knowledge was about HIV, which was often, presumably, as here, not very well informed at all. Um, how, did it, how did it go? I mean, how did, how did, it, how did you move through and, and sort of make that kind of, if you like, escalating engagement where you got to end up talking to, you know, women who were prostitutes, women who had sex outside of marriage, men who had sex with uh, gender, all of that. How did, how did you make that? kind of journey? Well, it was surprisingly easy. You know, you would think with all the taboos around sex that, that it would be difficult uh, to get people to talk about it. But actually, my difficulty was getting, getting people to stop talking about sex, quite frankly. And the reason for that is that women talk to women all the time about sexual, mm. sexual matters, and men are speaking to men. The difficulty comes when you mix men and women together. Mm. There's a real constraint there. And then when you try to take this discourse uh, into the public domain. In any case, uh, many of the people I interviewed who had a professional interest in these matters, bloggers, film directors, doctors, lawyers, um, religious figures, for example, uh, again, under the, the, the umbrella of HIV, to, I would approach them, we would talk, and they were very keen to discuss the situation because there is a lot of anxiety uh, about the problems, be it HIV or... Uh, or certainly sexual violence, that um, the rising tide of that uh, across the Arab region, or <laughs> for example. Uh, and for ordinary people, it was interesting, and particularly for women. What I found is that my insider-outsider status, which could have been quite difficult and, and, and could have been a barrier, actually turned out to be a blessing. And, and the reason for that is, particularly for women, they have lots of questions and they have lots of things they would like to bring into the open, but very often they're constrained in talking about these matters. Again, it's the question of the appearance. So they saw me as someone who had a connection to their part of the world, was of the same, was of the same religion, uh, and sp speaks Arabic, and so they felt I knew where, where they were coming from. But 
they have ideas about Western sexual life in the same way that people in the West have stereotypes about sexual life in the Arab region. And one of these stereotypes, East looking West, is that basically anything goes in the West and you can talk about sex without judgment and without censure. And for these women it was marvelous because they felt that they could open up to me. And we had some of the most fantastic, frank, and very funny exchanges um, I've ever had in my, in my working, uh, working career. So it was a wonderful experience. Um, men, single men, and certainly um, men who have sex with their own sex, some of whom self-identify as gay and, and, and many do not, they were also very open in talking about their anxieties. <laughs> Uh, the group that was slightly more reticent uh, were married men, uh, pillars of the patriarchy. But in part because they don't actually have many opportunities to talk about these things. They have another language for it and the, the discomfort is, is, is so in, in, embedded in them, yeah? Well, language, if I can just pick up on that point, language is a, is a really interesting uh, issue around sex in the Arab world. So interestingly, we don't even have a, a widely recognized uh, word in Arabic for sexuality. Uh, it, it, I, I, was, I gave a lecture at, at another university in the UK, which will remain. We won't. Un, yes, unnamed. Un the other place. No, 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 no. no. One of the other places, oh, I, I would say. <laughs> uh, in, in any case, uh, I, was, um, I was being hosted by uh, a sociologist there, a young Egyptian, and he was writing a paper on sexuality, and he had some friends, he was Skyping with friends from Egypt, and they asked him, what are you doing these days? And he said in Arabic, I am writing a paper on and couldn't find the word in Arabic. Uh, so we are very constrained around language to talk about sex. I mean, I mean it's actually, some, I can't remember whether it is, well, there was, there's no word for female genitalia. Oh, no, no, there is. So, oh, there is. So, well, somewhere, some, there's something. No, so so, so, so the, the, the point is today, most, Arab, most Arabic speakers, if they speak English or French or indeed Hebrew, would rather use a foreign language to talk about sex than use Arabic. And this is a particularly acute problem for women because there's no sexuality education, so they don't have a um, formal terminology. The only language is the language of the street, which they feel very uncomfortable using. So as far as they go basically talking about female genitalia, they talk about taht. Taht is sort of down there, and it covers everything from the waist down, effectively. But what's most interesting is that, and, and a measure of how far we have, we have come or fallen in the Arab world, is that a thousand years ago, we used to have whole dictionaries of sex in Arabic. And indeed, one 10th century book talks about there being 1,083 verbs for to have sexual relations in Arabic. And where we are today is this extremely constrained place, and it's a measure of how uncomfortable we have become around sex. I want to ask you about um, the, the whole HIV thing first. Um, because you know, the starting point was a sort of almost epidemiological study, um, and uh, and how prevalent it is. And you assume that actually it's hard to kind of get to serious numbers because there's an unwillingness to talk and to, to reach it until people become really ill. But um, how is it transmitted? I mean, we're talking about um, uh, men having relations with prostitutes who who, who uh, uh, transmitted, or are we talking about a higher level of denied homosexuality and therefore anal sex being the, what, what, what is the issue? So essentially we have what's known as a low generalized prevalence. So we have about 0.2% if you look across countries in the Arab region in the general population. And that's a tiny fraction compared to let's say some countries in sub-Saharan Africa where it's 5% or plus. 
but we don't look at the general population. We look at populations which are engaged in what we consider to be high-risk behaviors. These are men who have sex with men, uh, people who inject drugs, and female sex workers. If you look at these populations, in Tunisia, for example, where they did some very robust research amongst men who have sex with men, across the country you find that 10% of those men are infected with HIV. And it's important to keep in mind that men who have sex with men in the Arab world also have sex with women. So I do work with women who are uh, living with HIV. And the classic story of a woman who is infected is that uh, she gets married relatively young, 18, 20. Uh, there's enormous pressure to reproduce. If you don't have a child by your first uh, wedding anniversary in most families, it's a family tragedy. So she has her first child. The child is ailing. She goes to the hospital. She then discovers that her child has HIV, she has HIV, and it got her from her husband. 70% of women who are infected with HIV in the Arab region contracted the virus from their, from their husbands. This, however, is the tip of the iceberg, because you're right, we don't have good surveillance as you find in other parts of the world, in particular in Western countries, because it's, it's difficult to reach out to key populations, female sex workers, men who have sex with men, because their behaviors are also illegal. They're unlikely to turn up to a, a government <laughs> testing program. Uh, if you think the Ministry of Interior is somewhere behind, I'm going to scoop you up. What's interesting though, and again, one of the key parts of my book, and the reason it took me five years to write it, is that I wasn't just looking for problems, I was looking at solutions. And some of these solutions come from NGOs, and a lot of these NGOs which tackle sexual matters are working on HIV. So we have some great outreach in countries across the region trying to uh, bring information and protection like condoms, for example, and trying to get people tested. But it is a real uphill, uphill struggle. I want just then to talk about the business of, of, of you know, chastity being presented as being the absolute um, uh, you know, thing to be preserved at all costs until marriage, and, that, uh, and, and the reality of that. So th th this, uh, this issue of virginity uh, is really uh, very keenly illustrates the gap we have between appearance and reality across the Arab region. And, and I actually need to make a point here that I'm generalizing about 370 million people in 22 countries here. Yeah. But, but this particular point holds true across, across the region. Uh, we are, as Muslims and, and Christians, uh, we are enjoined uh, to remain chaste before marriage. But we're talking about patriarchal societies here, and boys will be boys. Men have sex before marriage, and people more or less turn a blind eye. This is not true for women. For women, you are expected to be a virgin on your wedding night. But what's interesting in how this illustrates the gap between appearance and reality is that the definition of virginity is not a state of chastity. The reality, it's a piece of anatomy, an intact hymen. It's the appearance. So let me give you some idea of how this plays out on the ground. One of these NGOs I mentioned in the book that does fantastic outreach in, uh, in Morocco um, tries to reach female sex workers. Female sex workers are very interesting in, in, in the Arab region because they're, all, they're at one time they're the most visible face of sex. You see them everywhere, and yet they're also invisible. They're so self-stigmatizing, it's very hard to reach them with programs to help to empower them. Okay, I was out with this group. We were... Uh, do, walking the streets, if you like, of Casablanca. And we went into a bar and we met some young hairdressing students. 
these young women, 1920, returning tricks on the Atlantic Corniche to make some pocket money. The outreach workers did a wonderful job trying to encourage them to be tested for HIV, telling them here is a, a, a safe place you can come to talk about these issues, and tried to give them condoms. But these young women said, no, 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 we don't need condoms, no chance of us becoming pregnant, we only have anal or oral sex because we want to get married. The hymen. And therefore we have to be virgins on our wedding night, we have to have an intact hymen. In the name of an intact hymen, these girls were opening themselves to a world of trouble, including HIV. And so the, 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 the primacy of the hymen is, is so intense. And remember, uh, virginity, female virginity, is not an individual matter. This is not your private concern. This is your family's interest. And in particular, it is the honor and reputation of the menfolk in your family, your brothers, your father, your uncles, it is part of their male authority to deliver a virgin bride to the groom on the wedding night. And you have heard of the phenomenon of honor killing. <coughs> it is a shadowy, um, it is a shadowy practice. We don't know in any you know, robust statistical way how commonly it happens, but I interviewed women in this book who told me of relatives who had, um, ha had been subjected to honor killings, and it was used to keep their girls in line. The story of that, the thread of that was used to keep in line. Uh, so it is a huge, huge deal and there are all sorts of ways to either um, uh, try to preserve virginity, uh, such as female genital mutilation, and we can maybe talk a bit about that, uh, to uh, demonstrate virginity, a practice called uh, dochla, which we can also uh, speak about, uh, and if, if all else fails, to restore a reasonable facsimile of virginity through hymen repair surgery. Let's talk about the last bit first, because I mean, it is a particular, I mean, it's, I, I, I don't, I imagine that it operates in other places too, and I'm told that even in Harley Street, but you know, we're, we're, we're given to understand it goes on, but, um, but actually there was something of a scandal about it, certainly during the Mubarak. Uh, years around that, wasn't there? That was, well, I'm not sure, I mean, there are so many scandals, I think we probably well, need to specify. Uh, well, again, you know, that, that's, that's a fast terrain, yeah, frankly. Okay. Uh, there, there, is, there was the phenomenon, I'm not sure if, if this is what you're uh, uh, referring to, which is... <laughs> okay, so that wasn't actually during the Mubarak uh, period. That was during the military uh, government that we had just after the fall of Mubarak. So essentially, Okay, so, so, so sex is bound up with shame, and sex becomes an incredibly powerful tool of social control if you are a dictator or indeed if you are a religious conservative. Uh, and one of the ways this can manifest itself is that um, the military subjected a number of female protesters to uh, virginity testing. And the, the, the justification, I mean, the rationale for this is that it, it, it's such an embarrassing procedure, it's so humiliating, that it can, be acted, it can act as a deterrent. Other women who want to go out into the streets and protest the military regime would probably think twice if this was going to be the upshot. How did, I mean, I mean it's one of the things that was very interesting to me and I, I, um, was that I was recently in uh, Iraq doing um, some human rights um, programs, assessing, assessing them. And I went to one of the prisons where the women were being held, and, and the, the, the shocker is to be reminded there were women in there who were there for morality crimes. Okay, were, do you want to define your terms? Yeah, well, they were there locked up for having sex outside of marriage. 
And, um, and so, I mean, it's just hard for people, I think, to imagine that you go on a demonstration in, in Egypt and you could be arrested and that there could be any authority at all to look up people's vaginas to see if they've got a hymen. You know, what, what you know. But, but it, we're talking about, we're talking about sort of authoritarian systems, the power, the, the authority, the power is if you seize it, quite, quite frankly. And it lies in the hands of those who have the biggest gun. But, um, um, but, but it's also about the idea that, that it is criminal that it's actually a, a, an offence against the, the state as well as your own family, the idea that you might have sacrificed your virginity to somebody. I mean, that's part of the thing, is that the state interferes too. Well, it, it actually, it, so in many countries in, in the Arab region, including seemingly liberal countries, and I'm using, rel I'm using relative terms here, like Morocco, sex outside of marriage is, is technically illegal. In practice, these laws are not often are not often enforced, and when they are, it tends to be. I mean, it's 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 classist, quite frankly. If you're a poor, if you're a poor woman, for example, or indeed if you're a poor gay man, you're much more likely to be arrested than if you're a wealthy individual. You you operate in a different in a different domain. In particular, if I can just point out what's interesting about this this forced virginity testing in in Egypt is, is that it was also used as potential grounds for blackmail. Uh, because if a woman were to be found not to be a virgin, and it was the single women they were testing, obviously not the married ones, uh, then uh, it's also another lever of control by, by, by authorities. What's interesting is that there was a young woman, who, one of the protesters who had been tested, who did take a case against the military, and she lost. That, sadly, not a surprise. But what was interesting is that what she was contesting was the forced aspect of the testing. She never once questioned why on earth would virginity be a relevant <laughs> issue and in what is essentially a political matter. And that's quite interesting because when I talk to young women across the, the Arab region and we talk about the question of, of virginity, um, really their definition of sexual freedom is, is I think slightly different from the way sexual freedom, the term is used by women, let's, young women, let's say, in, in, in the UK. And their definition of freedom was not the freedom to have sex before marriage. Many of the young women I interviewed thought it was wrong. It was against their faith. What they wanted to do was have the freedom to control their own, their own, their own bodies, quite, quite frankly. And that is the aspiration of so many. And it's still very far to be, from being realized, in large part because we don't exist as individuals in the Arab region. And we have these great constitutions which enshrine individual rights, and indeed we have laws which uh, formulate our rights in that context as well. But operationally on the ground, basically you exist as part of your family. And your family is the organizing unit of society. And this was brought home very, uh, very sharply to me uh, by a young um, uh, queer activist, a woman whom I met in Lebanon, and I were talking about sexual rights and sexual identity. And she was telling me, Shireen, what on earth are you talking about sort of sexual rights and sexual identity? I don't even have an individual identity. In the records of the state, I am registered as the daughter of my father. And if I were to marry, I would be the wife of my husband. I don't exist as an individual. And practically speaking, I can't get a job. I can't afford to move out of my parents' place. If I don't get married, it's not socially acceptable for me to move out of my parents' place. I'm stuck. I'm at the, I'm at the beck and call of my family. They call the shots. So this becomes a really, uh, really a limiting factor to how far we can go with an argument around, you know, not just sexual rights, but political, economic, and social rights. I wanted to talk to you about one of the things that came through 
in, my, in our discussions in um, Beirut um, as a human rights issue, but also in the whole business of the citadel, was that there are different forms of marriage. And that, I think, is something that is quite um, revelatory to people who don't know in, in, in the West about how marriage has these different forms. Can you explain what you describe? The, many, sh the many shades of marriage, okay. The many shades of marriage, yeah. So, so, so this also comes back to the, the fact of the citadel. So the, the problem we have, we have lots and lots of young people, 60% of our population in most Arab countries is under the age of 30. And we have very high youth unemployment, around 30% or so. In many countries, this is one of the major drivers of the uprisings. The difficulty for young men in particular is that they are expected to cover all the costs of marriage, and marriage has become very expensive because our economies have opened to the full force of global capitalism, and as a consequence, they are having to wait to get married in some cases until their early 30s. With the rising tide of, um, of Islamism over the past uh, few decades, young people are, many young people are reluctant to engage in sexual relations outside of marriage. They just feel that it's wrong and they feel profoundly guilty. So one of the ways they try to fudge this because they can't afford to get into real marriage is to engage in some of these, they're informal marriage structures. And they're not registered with the state, and depending on which religious scholars you ask, they may or may not be halal, they may or may not be accepted in Islam. But they include such structures as um, what's called muta'a marriage, this is pleasure marriage, this exists in Shia Islam, and it's essentially, uh, it's, it's a, it can be a verbal contract, you come together, uh, it's essentially for the purposes of having sexual relations, and your union is on a timer from the start. This is, you will be together for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, and then this union dissolves without, without strings, basically. That type of marriage is not permitted to us in Sunni Islam, uh, and indeed is a source of um, uh, many uh, Sunni Muslims and Muslim clerics when they want to criticize Shia Muslims will say, ah, look at these Shias, they're so, they're so sexed up, uh, they have these forms of marriage, etc., etc. But I've met young Sunni Muslims who look with envy at Shia couples because they have this flexibility and we do not. We have forms of marriage which are informal uh, in Sunni Islam as well, uh, one of which is called Orfi marriage. Now, my grandparents were married Orfi marriage. This would be just a, um, it would be, uh, there would be a ceremony with the family and it would just be a piece of paper, and, but it wouldn't be registered with the state. So this is translated now into a form of marriage you see amongst young people in Egypt. Two university students, for example, can't afford to get married, want to have sexual relations. I talk about this in my book. They decide to enter into these sort of one of these contracts. They go to a lawyer, they get a piece of paper, and when the marriage dissolves, they just tear it up and you're, and you're finished. Um, the problem with some of these marriages is that they circumvent family control. A formal marriage is about two families coming together, not just two individuals. And orphan marriages, kids tend not to tell their parents. And so the parents argue that, ah, these marriages are not permitted in Islam. But that's not the real reason. You can talk to Islamic scholars and they will tell you, these marriages are legitimate. The problem is that they challenge the existing order. They challenge the power of the family. And quite frankly, in a patriarchal system, challenging the power of the family <laughs> is also indirectly challenging the power of the state. But I'm coming across it not just in the Arab world. I'm coming across it, across it um, because I do a large amount of work with, um, in terrorism, alleged terrorism, 
and um, young couples in, in Britain too, who are um, challenging the British state, who are challenging um, even democracy, and talking about a return to the caliphate and all that sort of thing, um, are also um, you know, choosing not to, to, to marry with an imam and to do it contractually and not to have it registered with the state. They don't think the state's got anything to do with them. And so they actually have these marriages which are not registered. And one of the purposes, they say, is that they don't want it to be, um, they want to be subject to Sharia law. And so they'll say that if there is to be a divorce, they want it to be um, according to strict Sharia <coughs> And that in, in the kind of, if you like, separation of assets, it will be done according to Sharia and they will introduce into it um, uh, lawyers who are Sharia lawyers. And they don't want the, the British state to be involved. And so that's one of the things that happened. I also have just come back, as I said, from Iraq, where there's a huge campaign now amongst women, about many of them, particularly in rural areas, where they, were, they had marriages that were not registered by the state, large numbers of, of widows because they've gone through so many wars. And the widows are having difficulties getting even kind of small benef benefits that might come to widows because they can't prove their marriages because they don't they have the state. So there seems to be, I mean, that's obviously largely Shia, but not, not exclusively. But, um, but, but the British ones, are, it's in this, within the Sunni tradition, is those who are basically challenging the orthodoxies of, the, if you like, the British state. It's very different in the Arab region. Most people want to get inside the citadel. People don't want to live outside, yeah, outside the citadel. When we surveyed young people in Egypt in 2009, and this was nationally representative, only 2% of young couples said, or young people said that they considered these Urfi marriages, these unofficial marriages, as a, a, a legitimate uh, alternative to the real thing. It's not a lifestyle choice, it's the last resort. I have to say though that, again, these, these informal marriages also bring us to another point about the tension between appearance and reality, and if I can just illustrate this. So we have a big business uh, in sex tourism in Egypt and across the Arab region. Uh, and in particular in Egypt, what we've had is uh, the so-called summer marriages, in which uh, wealthy Gulf tourists come to escape the heat of uh, their home countries, and they do a bit of shopping, and one of the things they shop for are young girls. They're doing it in Syria now too. Yes, Egyptian I mean, women. It's hard, the Syrian women are particularly beautiful because of their fairness, aren't they? Although that is true, I would not dispute that. Uh, <laughs> but um, I would have to say, when I posed that argument to one young woman who had been gone into one of these marriages, and she comes from a village where there are so many of these marriages, and I asked her, "Is it because the girls in your village are so pretty?" And frankly, she looked at me as if I were an idiot. She said, "No, it's because we're so poor." You know, mm -hmm. um, But anyway, the point is, so they, they come, these tourists come, there is a whole network of brokers in, in Cairo, and these girls are being essentially trafficked by their families. They enter into these marriages, they have these little pieces of paper in front of the lawyer, uh, the girls get maybe 500 Egyptian pounds, their families get 20,000 Egyptian pounds, they have sex for a couple of weeks, and then the, um, the tourist, the man goes home and the girl goes back to her family. And this phenomenon is very hard to fight because it has a legitimate Islamic cover. It has one of these marriage certificates. Again, the appearance is marriage. The reality is sort of sex tourism, sex and, and, and sex trafficking, and sex trafficking, quite frankly. But again, this gap between appearance and reality makes it very difficult to try to tackle the phenomenon. I want to go back to the thing that you said you would come to, which is the issue of FGM.
um, because female genital mutilation, in fact, um, Egypt has one of the highest incidences of it, we're told, uh, of any, anywhere in the world. Um, and although it's been outlawed, as I understand it, um, you know, nobody takes a blind bit of notice of that. And, um, and that it actually, um, you know, it, it really is being hard to budget, you know, to move it, to get it to stop happening. Um, I mean, it'd be interesting for people, people don't understand it. People say to me, but why would anybody want to do that? And why, why, why do you get women, if you like, the sort of generalized consent to it? Right, so just to put this in perspective, uh, about 80% of girls aged 15 to 17 in Egypt are circumcised. And as you say, Helena, this is in the presence of a law which uh, criminalizes the, the, the practice. And the vast majority <coughs> of those girls, 75% of them, are being circumcised by doctors or nurses. And the, the, the type of circumcision we have in Egypt, and my apologies to the more squeamish in the audience, is essentially you clip the clitoris and you take a, a bit of the neighboring flaps of flesh. Uh, we don't have so much the type of um, uh, female circumcision that you will tend to see in immigrant populations here in, uh, in Britain, which is, yeah, which is infibulation, where you take everything away and then you sort of essentially sew up the girl uh, as, as well. There are a number of arguments which are advanced for female genital mutilation. When you talk to, to, to women about this, uh, they will tell you it is tradition, they will tell you it is aesthetics, it just looks nicer if you do this. Uh, they will argue religion, and they will invoke uh, what, uh, they will evoke a hadith, which is um, uh, an account of the sayings or deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. But this particular hadith is incredibly weak. It's, it's, it's dubious, to say the least. But they, they, they will use it to justify the practice. But the real reason they cut, they have their girls cut, is because they believe that you need to clip the clitoris in order to make a girl cool. Good. Yeah. Because what they're afraid of is that if you don't, um, curb the clitoris, uh, girls will have this insatiable sexual desire and they will be having sex before marriage and they will make excessive sexual demands of their husbands during marriage, both of which are marriage killers. They take you outside the citadel, a place you do not want to be. What is interesting about F FGM is that men really don't have much of a say in this. Hus uh, fathers are really not involved in to cut <laughs> and this is happening to girls around age 7 to 12. And essentially, mothers are doing it not because they've been cruel to their daughters, they do it because they love their daughters, and they think that this is going to give them the best chance in life. Now what's interesting is when the law was passed by the Mubarak regime, I met a lot of women who were having their girls circumcised almost as a form of resistance to the government, to saying the Mubarak regime says that we shouldn't do this, and the, the religious figures who, uh, who, who preach against it are in the pockets of the, the regime, which is in hawk to the West. Uh, and uh, so it was very difficult to eradicate. That being said, there have been decades of campaigns now against FGM, and they are making a dent in the practice. And the projections are that if everything goes according to the current pace, that by 2025, only 50% of girls will be circumcised. I know that sounds like a lot, but in 2005, that figure was 95%. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's one of those areas where I've done lots of work over 20 odd years. And I remember in the, in the earliest time, um, going to um, be invited to come to a hospital in North London where there were um, young women who would, and, and it would be discovered when the young women were, would arrive pregnant 
to, to, you know, for, to deliver it. Well, and usually before, you see, they'd be encouraged, um, and it's sort of generally accepted that, you know, you want a hospital birth, because that's part of living in a developed world, and, um, and so you go for the examinations before you ever are going to give birth, and to register with the hospital and stuff. And, and then they'd be put up on the table, and, and, then, and then the doctors would tell the women that um, they were, were going to have to experience an episiotomy in order to deliver, and so on. And the women would ask the doctors to sew them up again, and the doctors would say to them, we are not, the law in Britain does not allow us to do that. And, uh, and the women would weep and say that their husbands would not like it, would not like how it looked. It, they would, their husbands would, would be rejecting of, of them. And very often the doctor said that by the time they came back to have their second, you know, pregnant the second time round, there they were sewn up again. And, uh, and what we think is going on is that actually it's been done in the communities um, by other women, older women in the communities. But, um, and it was very interesting because I saw um, some of the women had allowed photographs to be taken of their vaginas. And, um, and it was kind of almost hard to imagine how it was possible to have sexual intercourse with some of the kind of ways in which they'd been sewn up. But um, what, after um, all of that, um, I had discussions more recently um, with um, um, doctors and people in, in public health who are saying that the prevalence of, por of pornography from the West, though, is shifting some of the ideas mm. about this amongst younger men because they're seeing the vaginas yeah. that look different. So, so I have, um, so as I said, men, men, men tend not to be very much involved in decision making around FGM. And in fact, most, in fact, in the studies that, that I've been part of in, um, in Egypt, uh, most men didn't have a clue quite frankly, whether their brides were circumcised or not. They, because there's no, virtually no sexual <laughs> education in schools, and they sort of assumed their brides were, but they didn't really want to ask, and so that's that. Again, yes, as you say, pornography is making a difference because there is a lot of porn going down, as it were, in, uh, in Egypt and across the Arab world, and men are now seeing what uncircumcised women look like, and they are saying, you see, we told you we need to circumcise our girls, because look at this Western woman, she is uncircumcised, and she's having sex with two or three men at a time. We told you our girls would go off the rails if we didn't do this. Uh, so, and, and just on that point about pornography, it's quite interesting, I interviewed, um, I, have a, I have an episode in the book in which I went to meet with a woman who does magic, quite frankly, uh, and magic is, a, is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is an important part of everyday life in many for many people in the Arab region, including highly educated people as well. And um, one of the things that she's being asked for are special almost talismans to keep husbands uh, on the straight and narrow, faithful. And one of the problems she talked about is the fact that pornography is really causing tensions within marriage around sex because men are seeing these videos and they want to have more exciting sexual experience and very often their wives feel uh, reluctant to, 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 to deliver on that. But at the same time, some of the wives I talk about who did try to spice up things in the bedroom, when they did this, their husbands were actually shocked. And in fact, in one case, I talk about a young woman who was looking forward to her big night, the wedding night. She read on the internet and uh, she tried to mix things up a bit in the bedroom and her husband hauled her out of bed and made her swear on a Quran that she had not had experience before marriage. Mm. So the pornography is actually pumping up the pressure in, uh, in marriage and it's causing a lot of difficulties outside of marriage as well.